I'm looking down and the carpet was gone. Everything was pulled up. There were animals everywhere. Like I could not, and feces, you could see dog poop and cat poop everywhere. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. It looked like a hoarder house. Things, boxes were stacked everywhere. And I was like, what the actual Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stott from A. Stott's Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Michelle Russell. Michelle, are you ready to rock? I am ready. Absolutely. Well, let me tell the audience a bit about you. And Michelle, Russell is an author, speaker, and host of the Short-Term Rental Revenue Podcast. She has a history of successful investments in a rich variety of markets and has learned from some of the best. And I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, what she's already told me about the short-term rental revenue structure that she's come up with is already pretty fascinating. So, Michelle, take a moment and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, I've been investing in real estate for quite some time. And so I was in real estate before the crash, was lucky enough to be in with Rich Dad before that. So we had a lot of speakers coming in, all the experts telling us that it was a bubble, massive bubble was coming. So that meant I was able to sell at the top of the market. But at that time, there wasn't all the internet stuff that we have now, like Zillow's and things like that. I mean, we were literally calling realtors and doing everything ourselves. So when the market started to go down, we had sold everything, but we didn't know what to do on the down market. We were just kind of like, okay, we'll just hold this in silver and gold and some of our other assets. And so there was still a learning curve there for you know, building the wealth back up as the market was recovering. So I bought again, learned how to buy and, and invested over six figures into several different real estate gurus <laughs> into my education again to relearn different things, you know, wholesaling things that weren't there when I was investing and just started investing again and then had to sell. And then when I was selling things off, I realized I was missing that income and the properties that were still making me the most money for my short-term rentals. I decided to rent from friends and turn the properties into short-term rentals. And it was amazing. I actually thought I invented it for a while. <laughs> I was like, nobody else is doing this. It's a huge secret. And then I realized there were other people doing that. I was like, oh, shoot, I'm not that brilliant. <laughs> well, it's interesting about it though, is, as you were telling me about it before we got on the podcast, you know, I was thinking that the only way to get rental income like this is to buy a unit and then fix it up and then rent it out. And so I have a friend, for instance, in Bangkok and he and his wife are buying units and they're tying up a lot of capital, you know, and they, they like what they're doing. And I never once thought that they didn't have to buy. So that really is though, you know, you could say, okay, other people are doing it. It is not a common knowledge. So I really wanted, you know, you to to introduce that to the listeners because I think that that's some real it's value. It's actually a really great ploy too, if you're like me, because we, and you know, in my circle of friends, we know there's another crash coming. Mm -hmm. And so where do you want your cash? Where do you want your money? Do you want it tied up in properties that might lose half the value? So this is actually 
an amazing way to create cash flow without a lot of risk. You know, so if we're on a month to month with somebody and the market goes to hell in a handbasket, we just back out and we take our furniture with us and boom, we're gone. We close mm. shop and we've got nothing to lose. Yep. Who's losing it all? Mm. You know, so yeah, it's, well, it's great. great. To, and I'm going to tell the listeners to go to short-term rental revenue podcast and listen, you'll also get some of Michelle's excitement, which she's got a lot of and energy. So check it out. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since oh, no yeah. one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, we'd never do that. Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, well, my worst investment ever came from a rental property that I had. I was investing, like I said, before the crash. So remember, this is as the market is going up at a property that I had purchased for just under $100,000. It was a three to 1,600 square feet, really nice property. And I put a great couple in this property. They were amazing, amazing tenants. And I had them for about three years. Absolutely loved this couple. I saw them, you know, they would bring their rent over and I lived in the same town and fantastic people. I absolutely adored them. And suddenly I get a phone call one day and he died. He was hit on his motorcycle and killed instantly. And it was devastating. I mean, all of us in the, you know, we had all kinds of things for Harley and we had a parade for him and different things. And it was, it was just devastating, but I really felt sorry for the woman he was marrying. He was engaged to her. They were just, it was just before they were getting married. I had known them for that three years that they were, you know, living together and just a wonderful, wonderful couple. And she was a nurse and I mean, they were just really good people. And so when he passed away, she told me that he had forgotten to change his insurance from his ex to her. So all his life insurance went to his ex oh and, and not to her, right? And I, oh, my heart was just bleeding for her because here they're canceling wedding plans, all these things. They're planning for a funeral. I mean, it was just this, this roller coaster of emotion and, and my heart was just bleeding for her. I really felt bad. And so I said, you know what? You know, she said that they had planned on buying the house. I said, I will do everything I can to help you buy this house. Because she said, you know, all the memories of him are going to be in it. And she wanted it. So I said, okay. So I sold her the house and kept in touch. But, you know, I didn't, you know, I, we weren't best friends or anything. I mean, we, we knew each other. It's like, you know, any tenant, you see them once a month or something, you know, of them and you feel close to them, but not, you know, not like they're calling up every day. I didn't hear from her for about a year. And every year around the holidays, I take off an entire month and I go down to Florida to my place down in Florida. And my kids have always been homeschooled. So we just go and have fun all around the holidays and do all kinds of stuff. And we're on our way down there and she called me and she said, you know, it had been about a year and she said, they're foreclosing on me. I need $13,000. Can I borrow $13,000 from you? And I said, yeah, no, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't lend money to anybody. I don't lend money to my kids. It's just not something I do. I've done it in the past and I learned my lessons from, you know, I just said, you know, you always become the bad guy when you lend money, never lend money. But what I can do 
is I can buy the property back from you and I will rent it out to you. And so because I had the cash, I just bought it cash and I paid, I had sold it to her for 120,000 and I paid her 135. I said, well, 15,000 make you enough to get the liens off of there because she had liens on a few things and she had told me that she had had liens. And I said, well, that get you out of trouble. And she said, yeah. So I paid her 135, but I never went and looked at the property. When they were renting from me for that three years, the place was immaculate. They left it. It was a, it was a brand new place. It couldn't have been more than six years old or seven years old. So they had always taken really good care of it. So I didn't even think about it or worry about it. But I went to Florida. And while I was there, you know, the mortgage and everything. I closed on the papers, did all the work down there. And suddenly she just wasn't answering my phone calls. She wasn't going to pay rent. <laughs> I was like, okay. So when I got back to Arizona, I called and she avoided my phone calls. Like she just never replied to my phone calls. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to go over there. Right. But by this time I lived in a different part of the Valley, but I was like, okay. So I traipsed over there and got out of my car and immediately I knew something was wrong. I was like, I pulled up into what was once a beautiful landscaped home and the landscaping had just gone to hell. I mean, it was out of control. And as I got out of the car, like this crazy pungent smell was just illuminating from the house. And I was like, I looked at my daughter and I was like, is that cat pee? Like, do you smell that? And my daughter was like, this is bad. And I was like, oh, please, please, God. <laughs> I'm walking up to the door. I'm just like, please, God, not, not the house. Don't let it be coming from the house. <laughs> it's just like, don't. So I, I knock down the door. Oh, my God. My heart just felt my stomach because as she opened the door, just first of all, like, you know how when you open an oven, like that wave of heat comes at you? Imagine that wave of heat coming with the most disgusting smell that you have ever experienced in your life. I was gagging. I thought, I'm going to get sick right here. I'm like, I'm step back, trying not to get close. And I'm looking down, and the carpet was gone. Everything was pulled up. There were animals everywhere. Like, I could not. And feces, you could see dog poop and cat poop everywhere. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. It looked like a hoarder house. Things, boxes were stacked everywhere. And I was like, what the actual cuss words are going through my head. I'm like, what the actual F is going on here? <laughs> Just like freaking out going, this can't even be the same thing. And sure enough, the woman was in front of me. She had gained probably over 120 pounds. She had gone through a severe, severe depression after his death, which is why she, she had lost her job, which was why she wasn't paying the rent and why she wasn't paying the mortgage in the first place. And in order to, I don't know, you know, maybe alleviate her pain or the emptiness, she had started to collect animals. And there were probably 25 dogs in there oh, and God. roughly 35 to 40 cats in this house, in this small house. And it was like, honestly, just devastating. I can't 
like the feeling in my chest and in my stomach, but I'm just like, no, <laughs> this house is, it's a mess. Every part of it was a mess. And I just said, look, can you pay rent? And she said, no, I don't have a job. I don't have anything. And I just looked at her and I said, I'm going to have to evict you. And I said, you got five days and find some place to go. And so I called her son because I'd known her son and stuff. And I said, you know what's going on with your mom? Like, have you been there to see her? And he said, yes. And we got together and I said, look, you've got to help her find a place because I have to evict her. I've got to put somebody else in that place and I've got to see the damage that's done in there. And he came and helped. And Arizona is a great state for getting, you know, like making sure that your payments are done. And it only takes, you go to the courthouse, you file, you know, like they haven't paid you their rent and stuff. It takes you five days and that's it. It just turns around super quick. So you can have someone evicted in less than two weeks easy. Mm. And I went through all the paperwork and had her evicted and talking to her son, I said, look, just leave whatever she can't take with her. I'll get a lugger and we'll clean it up. And after he got her out and we went back to the house, like <laughs> Andrew, it was so bad. Like, honestly, you've seen like those shows hoarders and stuff. It was, it was so bad. I just, I walked in and tears are falling from my eyes. We had masks on because we could barely breathe in there. And we're looking around and there was so much junk and the floors and I mean, there was feces everywhere. And you could tell that the cats and dogs were urinating on the walls inside the pantry. It was crazy. There was so much urine from these animals that the walls and the baseboards had expanded because of the water, like being soaked with that urine and stuff. And then there was black mold everywhere, like because of the urine on the walls, there was mold, like literally mold. You felt sick when you were in there. So it took us a few days to empty out the property. We had to hire a bunch of people and we couldn't keep anybody because they would come and it smelled so bad that they would go, look, this is, you could pay me $20 an hour, $30 an hour. I'm not going in there. <laughs> we were just like, oh shit, <laughs> what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to get this place emptied? So that, that's when it came in really convenient to have five kids from Catholic. So I was like, get your little buds in here. Y'all are coming out <laughs> empty this place. Put little masks on my kids. And my kids were older, so they're all, you know, in their teens and stuff. So it's not like I was abusing small children. I was abusing <laughs> my larger children. Who abused me. They were learning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they definitely were. But we... We filled two, you know, the really big luggers that are the size of a back of a truck? We filled two of those things oh. with all the crap that was in this house. And, I mean, the story is, honestly, when we were, we were trying to move a bed, there was a bed stuck, and we were trying to get the mattress out. And we're like, why, why can we not pick this stuff up? And we're looking under the bed, and I said, I think there's, like, a brown blanket, like, stuck under the legs or something of this bed and it turned out that the cat had taken and made a hole up into the bottom of the mattress and then used it as a litter box and filled it so much that what looked like a brown blanket was actually just cat feces oh my and it God. had 
diffused itself from the bed and the mattress and the frame to the floor and the carpeting. And I mean, it was like through this whole place, <laughs> through this whole place. I'm looking at this house too. And I, I had actually lived in that house at one time and it was a gorgeous house, you know? And I was like, I can't even believe that this is the same house. So finally, we, we got it all cleared out. We got all the furniture and stuff out of there, but there was still that mold issue. So I called emergency restoration. So there's companies out there. If you are a landlord, you know, let's say that there, somebody had a drug you know, lab or something in your house. You would call these guys. They clean up after drug labs. They clean up after dead bodies if there was a murder. I mean, these are the guys you call. So called them, they came in and they tested the air quality and they said, you have to leave this house. Like, it is toxic in here. And Michelle, you're not going to like us. And I said, okay, well, what's the bad news? And he goes, the bad news is everything has to go. And he said, from your light fixtures to your blinds to, you know, we're going to have to clean out all the air ducts. You're going to have to take every single plug and pull it off and replace that. He said, we're going to take all the drywall from four feet down, take all of that up, take all the baseboards are going to be gone. The doors and everything, we'll take them out. We'll clean them. We're going to sterilize and wash down the walls and see what happens after that. But we're going to take up all the carpeting, all the padding, all the tile. We're going to see if we can clean it all. This is probably going to cost you around 20 grand just for that part, not to fix it, just to gut it and clean it and get it out of there. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This house was brand new six years ago. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And the guys were like, no, I mean, babe, if you're breathing this stuff in, you're going to get a lung infection. Like it's really, really bad. So I just, I was like, okay, bite the bullet. I had paid cash for the house. So now I'm like starting to pay all this cash into the house and it's before the crash. So I'm like, okay, you know, I know something's coming and I'm terrified about every penny I put into it because I'm like, okay, well, got to do what we got to do, right? We got to get it moving. We went into the backyard. The backyard was this gorgeous, gorgeous backyard with, you know, just a wonderful pads of grass and a built-in fire pit and a pool. And it was trash to hell and back. I mean, it was just, it was disgusting. So I had my crew, my landscaping crew go in there and I said, just pick up the dog poop from these 25 dogs <laughs> over the past year that have been pooping in these rocks. And the guys were like, we tried it for a half day and they called me and they said, this isn't going to work. You know what we got to do? We got to pull all the rocks, all the grass, everything up, and we're going to have to replace it all. And I was like, Oh my gosh. You're like, what, what about, I thought that was supposed to be fertilizer. What are you talking about? It was just, and as all these things are happening, every time you got a phone call, it was just like, ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's the like, opposite oh. way. Normally when we say ka-ching, it's coming in, right? Yeah, this was just like going out. It was the bad ka-ching. It was like, yeah. oh, no, no, no. No, I can't even, you know, every, every time there was a phone call, it was another bad news and stuff. So it was just this place was a nightmare and once we got the smells the smells didn't even dissipate for the longest time the guys the workers we were close to mexico so we had a lot of workers who were speaking spanish so we had you know what did they call we we malo gato really bad cats you know <laughs> we were like 
like they would write stuff on the walls. I'm like, very funny, you guys. Stop writing on the walls about the cafe, you know? It's like, we got people coming in. You can't have this stuff written. But I mean, it was just really bad news. So I called my dad at the time and I said, Dad, you got to come help me. Because if I'm paying my contractors to do all this, I said, this thing is going to cost me another 50 grand just to get it back to what it mm. was. And I've already spent about, you know, 30,000 between inside emergency guys, <laughs> the emergency restoration and the outside, just pulling up the rocks and the landscaping and putting it all back down. I said, I've got to rebuild it now. So my dad saved my butt and came out and we put another 20,000 into it and made it look like, I mean, it was amazing, but all told, the restoration that we had to do in that, I mean, it was just mm. even more than, than floor to ceiling because through the ventilation system, pulling out, imagine all that bacteria and all the, the spores and stuff had gotten into the plugs. I mean, you had to literally replace the outlets and the light switches and all the fixtures and stuff had to be taken down. You could keep them if you sterilized them, but most of the time it was just like, Really, like, how in the heck are we going to do this? Just crash it, and we'll just get new stuff. So we we did a really good job cleaning and fixing everything, getting it all nice and new. But when we got out, I had put another about fifty thousand into it. Mm. Now here's this house, and you know now it cost me one hundred eighty-five thousand. I had one hundred eighty-five thousand into this house, but luckily, this was the end of the crash you know, or the beginning, I should say mm. the end of the build up. Right. So right before the end of it, you know, when right before mm. it popped. And so we went and we got an appraisal done on the property and it appraised for 265, which was freaking nuts, right? I was like, holy shit. How did this little house that cost me like a hundred grand, how in the hell did it, change, you know, like go from this because I'd never, you know, I was like, okay, that's perfect. This is just what we need. So silly me, I was thinking, I know there's going to be a crash, but nobody knew how bad the crash was going to be. Like what was like, you know, something's coming, but you don't know what the end result is going to be. Mm. So I was like, okay, worst case scenario on this, let's put in, let's do a 50, 50. So I thought, okay, I'll take a mortgage out of 135. Now that was like big mistake because I should have taken out all 80% the loan to value 80%. I should have done that. Um, I had the the rental, you know, the rent roll for the past several years before she had purchased it. Mm -hmm. So I could prove what the rental income was. And I should have maxed out what the loan to value was and just pulled all my cash. Right. And that would have meant that you still owned it as opposed to selling it? Yeah, I still owned it. Okay. I still owned it. The rents in that area were well enough to pay for that. So it was so it, still just, just out of curiosity, at 265 why wouldn't you just say, I'm selling it and I'm out of here? You know, at that time, we had our daughter and she was going to school and she wanted to live in it. Once we got it all fixed up, it was Pretty nice, amazing. mom. I know. This place is pretty <laughs> so, nice. $50,000 so later. She moved into it and she lived there for 10 years. Right. She stayed there for 10 years. So what you're saying is that 
what you should have done is say, I got this great house. It's appraised at 265. I've paid cash. Now what I should do is I could either sell it, number one, or my other option would be to go to the bank and get as much financing on this, get the cash back that I put into this house and then owe the bank, you know, regular payments for that 265 minus, you know, whatever down or amount that's in it. Right. That's what you're saying. Okay. Exactly. Instead, I kind of let my emotions with my daughter go, you know, go, all right, she needs to get in there in order for her to be able to afford the rent and the mortgage. I'm going to keep the mortgage low, right? So I'm going to keep those payments nice and low because she'll just make the payments on it. And I totally thought with, you know, with my heart and not my brain and decided, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And then the crash came. When the crash came, the price of that house, I just kept watching the value because <laughs> I was like, she's going to move out, you know, when she's done with school, probably in four years, right? At that yep. time, I was like, yep. I'm going to move out. I'm going to have to either put a renter in there or I'm going to have to sell it. And my idea was to sell it so I could get my money back, right? Value that house. Oh my gosh, Andrew, every day I was, <laughs> it was like, it was like holding gold. Have you ever held gold or silver and you just watch that and you know there's nothing you can do about it, right? You just watch it go and that, that's literally, I watched that price of that house go below a hundred thousand. Oh my God. Literally dip below a hundred thousand. And what was really strange about that, you know, that big bubble bust in Arizona was, and Kiyosaki had told us that too. He had told us at one time, if you can't Cash flow your properties for half the income, dump it. Mm. Well, that doesn't make any sense because the majority of time, even when the prices go down, your rents stay pretty, pretty consistent, right? Right. Oh, they didn't. Not in Arizona. There are places that we had properties that we sold where the, the rents actually went almost half. And that was one of them. The rents went way, way, way down. The values of the houses went down. The rents went way down. And we ended up having to keep that house for a decade, literally a decade, before we could sell it for even the 185. And that's what we sold it for was the 185. (laughs) This is called the sunk cost fallacy also, where you try to wait until you get back to the cost that you sunk into it. So tell me. Exactly. lessons did you learn oh my gosh so many lessons in this house right so many but it sounds lessons. like there was one critical mistake that i'm thinking but tell me the lesson Sell that house well <laughs> be, go back and just just kind of list out what did you learn from that okay well first of all i should have should have taken a look at the house you even though you think you know somebody the very first mistake i did was not go through all the due diligence that I would do whenever I was buying another house, which is having somebody walk through the house, just going to look at the property. Honestly, if I had just driven by that house or had somebody else drive by it, they would have been able to see the disrepair from the outside to tell us what was going on on the inside. All right. And I just assumed that because she was a good renter before and now she was a homeowner, it was probably going to be in the same condition that it was. And it wasn't. Okay. So that would have prevented me right there. Also feeling bad, you know, like, what do they say? Never take someone's place in the money pit or what? <laughs> right? It's like, if they're in there, don't just go in there and take their place. It's like, 
<laughs> she was the reason why she was having such a hard time is because she had let it go so much. So her mm. bank wouldn't even work with her because she had like the value of that home looked like it was nothing. I mean, there was no way from the outside, you couldn't even tell what was going on, mm. how old that property was. It looked old and you're like, boy, this house wasn't even 10 years old at that time. And no one would have been able to tell that from looking at the outside and the mm. property. So I should have known. I definitely should have known by then. Never do anything with your heart. Always work with your head when it comes to investments. You know, it's just things that I, now I just, it's all about business. So it's funny because my kids will say something. I'm like, dude, it's business. And they go, but mom. And I go, no, this is business. We need to keep rational, you know, like don't think with your heart. I got to help people out. You're not, there's one savior my priest used to say to me and you're not him. And <laughs> I was like, not my job to save everybody. So I was like, okay, learn that. And once I saw the big mess and I had already stepped in it, right. And I couldn't get out of it and I fixed it and I got that appraisal. You're right. I sort of just sold it right then at the top of the market, I knew because we had been selling all our other properties, we knew that the market was coming up and going to crash. And again, let my heart kind of lead the way so that my daughter would have, you know, a great place that she could afford. And I knew it was in great condition because we had done such a great job, you know, like you just let your heart again, take the lead and like, no, 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 that's not a way to invest. Mm. And so, right. you know, it took a long time to recover yeah. all of that money mm. because there well, was- And also all things. the energy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. The emotional energy, the emotional toll of that mm. place. That was but, just crazy too. Because, but, you know, when you invest in properties, I don't, I'm pretty cold now when I look at a house or anything, even the house we're in, I never look at anything the same way. Mm. So it's like, I'm not attached to any house, any of my rental properties, they're just properties. My stuff might be there, but it's not my, you know, it's not me or mm. part of me. So I yep. kind of, I kind of swung the other way. So my husband's like, you know, I could take it or leave it. Mm. Anything. <laughs> You're ruthless. Well, let me, like, yeah. let me summarize what I took away from your story. A few things. Okay. The first thing is really never ever, ever, ever skip <laughs> due diligence. Right. Yep. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to flip things a bit here and talk about the woman who lost her husband. And the other lesson from this is never let things go too far. Every listener on this podcast is struggling with something and we're letting it go, whether that's your health, whether that's your money, whether that's an investment, whether that's a relationship, never let things go too far. If you've got something that's going too far, stop because the cost, there is a tipping point where the cost of that thing going too far is extremely high. Let's just say, take gaining weight as an example. In the beginning, it's not a big deal, but eventually you'll hit a a turning point where the damage to your to your body could be permanent. So that's the second thing is never let things go too far. The third thing I would say is what I like to say is help other people with your profit. Oh, when you've yeah. made profit, donate. Fine. 
give, but don't help other people through your business. Help them with your profit. And then the fourth thing is I just want to highlight the value of getting out. Absolutely. This podcast is all about investment mistakes. And with these investment mistakes, you just keep getting tangled up deeper and deeper. But the amount of emotional energy is just that's expended is always such a powerful force that, you know, the value of getting out of a bad situation is really, really high. You know, there's a lot of value to it. So those are my takeaways. Any thoughts on those? No, those are perfect. Yeah. Those are really perfect. It's a lot. Yeah. I think that house had a lot to do with the reason why I do the short-term rentals the way I do. Because now when I look at a property, my first thoughts are, okay, what if everything goes to shit? Like right now, (laughs) what if the economy takes a dump? What if short-term rentals are made illegal? What if like I just go on and on with uh, all my exit strategies? If this happens, what will I do? If this happens, what will I do? If this happens, what will I do? And I have to make sure that that property can cash flow or move or I can dump it and get rid of it quickly now. So I'm super careful about buying. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why you should listen to Michelle when she talks about short-term rental and how to build short-term revenue from short-term rental or long-term revenue from short-term rentals. The point is, is that the value in most people in helping other people is the value that comes through their loss and suffering. So what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I'd like to go back to that phone call when you were in Florida and yeah. you offered to buy the house. I think that that, you know, was the, that was the point. That was the point. <laughs> and so let's just imagine that there's a man or woman out there listening and she's at that exact same point. What one, one piece of advice would you give her? Create an SOP. Create a set of standard operating procedures that you have for your acquisitions. And that's going to take you through all your steps of due diligence. And don't miss a heartbeat. Trust no one because you can't miss a step. You can't miss a heartbeat simply because you are moved by somebody else's story. There's going to be a lot of stories that move you, a lot of things that move you, especially like in this instance, you know. You you have that connection with people. But if you had standard operating procedures, if you had your due diligence checklist, and I had gone through that, I would have hit that on the first thing, just driving by. One of my guys would have drove by, showed me a picture, and I would have said, whoa, let's take a deeper, closer look at this. And I could have prevented all of this from happening. And still maybe have been able to help her get out of it. Sure, exactly. I coached her in a different way. Yep. Okay, that, ladies and gentlemen, that is fantastic advice. Create standard operating procedures, SOP. Really love that. And for those people that say, I don't know how to create SOP and that's a lot of work or whatever, just make a checklist. Start with a checklist. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? The next 12 months, I'm going to add 100 units to my short-term rental list. So... And I'm doing those through our self-directed IRAs. So this year I'm working with nothing but my self-directed IRAs. I'm like, oh, this year 
I'm going to focus more on this. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. And spin some plates. <laughs> exactly. As we were talking about before the show, we've got a lot of things going. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Michelle, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? You know what, Andrew, have you ever read Failing Forward? I don't think I've read that. Oh, you've mm. got to read Failing Forward. John Maxwell wrote a really great book called Failing Forward. And I think Embracing Your Failures, I read it very soon after this house. And I realized that everything happens for a reason. Fail big, you know, and win big afterwards. Pick yourself up. But those failures are there for a reason. Don't be afraid of failing. Get in there. <laughs> great. That's great advice. And I will take it and find failing forward. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes so that our listeners can go there and make sure you get the right one. Well, <laughs> it was a that's, pleasure. Thank you yeah, for having me on. Amazing. It was fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.